people struggling, people dying. Every day's another headline. While people cheating, people lying, leaving everybody else behind. We can wait for somebody else to come along. We can get on our feet and shout it. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to the Our Wisconsin Revolution podcast. This week we have a, a special episode. I have I have two co-hosts. This is Anders, and I'm here with both Eric Rohrholm and Will Walter. How are you guys doing this morning? What up? How's it going? So we got a, a trifecta of hosts this this week, and we're super excited about having Dan Schaefer on the podcast today to talk about elections in wisconsin we're only about actually we're exactly as we're recording two weeks out from election day um so breaking down some races and talking with dan on that we're we're super excited to do that um but first to talk about some some news uh i wanted to talk to you guys about the statement that the congressional uh, progressive caucus put out yesterday in support of President Biden's uh, diplomacy in regards with Ukraine. It reads, in a letter to President Biden today, my colleagues and I advocated for the administration to continue ongoing military and economic support for Ukrainians while pursuing diplomatic support to Ukraine to ensure we are helpful partners on efforts to reach, quote, a solution that is acceptable to the people of Ukraine. Let me be clear. We are united as Democrats in our unequivocal commitment to supporting Ukraine in their fight for democracy and freedom in the face of the illegal and outrageous Russian invasion. And nothing in the letter advocates for a change in that support. So that's a clarification to follow a letter that the Progressive Caucus put out in support of Joe Biden's approach to Ukraine. Um I know you guys have some thoughts. What 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 do you what do you think? Let's start with Eric. I know you got thoughts. Oh, I have a lot of thoughts. The politics and the timing of this letter is extremely interesting. Um, this conflict it has been really interesting as it has mapped into partisanship through the entire duration of the war um, from the beginning in February. Um, one of the things that I really want to underscore here, um, as we're talking about this conflict overall is I think it's really important to just keep in mind that the only real voices that have been dissenting from what was the White House position on this war, which was, you've heard lots of sound bites of this policy summarized, nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. Um, There've been lots of arms packages that have been largely bipartisan. The only anti-war voices though that you've heard have been from the far right, Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert. It's very atypical from the rest of the world where there is a, and even in this country, there has been a traditional um, anti-war movement on the left. So there was a lot of frustration um, from anti-war voices that the Progressive Caucus was, in the opinions of some, 
towing the line with what they might call a quote unquote war stance. Um, I think I think it's worth stating that we all support democracy. We're part of our Wisconsin revolution for a reason. I think none of us here are particularly. Yeah, I think none of us here are particularly sympathetic to Putin, the far right, you know, oligarchic billionaire all of those all of those things put aside the reality of this war is that there has been consistent escalation on both sides i'm not both sides in this conflict of course but there have been car bombs in moscow there have been muscle uh, uh excuse me missiles flying down in kiev um there's been constant um escalation 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 whether it's the north stream pipeline or the crimean bridge there's those most recently this piece in war on the rocks that i think uh, uh shook the foreign policy establishment the worst this piece called we are on a path to nuclear war um this is not a crank writing a piece you know in medium to themselves this is uh by an insider to an insider saying you guys we are rapidly on a path to nuclear war and that's not a sword rattling insane comment the article lays out really nicely how one logical step can lead to one logical step can lead to one logical step which ultimately leads to <laughs> nuclear escalation this is what happened in the cuban missile crisis almost 60 years ago today so the reality, Putin has even said as much. He is thinking about using nukes and not bluffing. A lot of people want to call his bluff. Do we really care about our planet enough that we're going to uh, risk that uh, risk that bet? So um, the timing of this letter is also really interesting, though, that you now have voices that are saying, with lots of caveats, we still support the president's position toward Ukraine. We still support Ukraine, but there needs to be a path toward diplomacy, including escalate. Excuse me, including engagement rather with Putin. That's a really big one. Uh, you might recall that earlier this year, I believe it was in April, um, when there did appear to be peace talks. That story didn't break for a couple months later. But when there were origins of peace talks between Putin and Zelensky, it was actually British Prime Minister Boris Johnson who went to Ukraine and effectively scuttled that on behalf of the West and on behalf of NATO. Um, so we have already been working to make this conflict worse. So the fact that there are now voices that are saying we need diplomacy and to outright engage ultimately in order to protect the Ukrainian people and protect the land and protect these regions that are war-torn to be from being covered in nuclear ash and radioactive uh, radioactive waste is um, I think a pretty logical common sense step. No, absolutely. And I think that it's, you know, talking about this idea of nuclear war and and the fact that selling, being against selling weapons to a country does not mean that anybody is anti-democracy or right. anti-people of Ukraine. But being anti-selling weapons to a country is being anti-use like use of weapons that are super, super dangerous and kill a ton of people. Like, I, yeah. I think that it's, it's silly to equate that position with being on the side of Putin. Because obviously, nobody on the anti-war side is on the side of Putin either, who is being extremely violent against, you know, people in Ukraine as well. And, and like, let's be clear, Russia was the one that invaded another country. Um, right. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that Amer it's America's job to go in. And, you know, I think with our history of like regime change wars and, um, you know, our involvement in replacing governments, um, it's probably, we don't, we don't have a, a good record of being, you know, those, that, that arbiter of, of democracy. Will, what are your thoughts? 
it sounds to me like you're a Putin apologist and that you uh, <laughs> want Russia to take. No, the, I mean, if I hate to be the one to say it, but we are very familiar with that concept because every single time that we as an organization criticize the Democrats, that is what we hear from Democratic establishment, right, is you're supporting Donald Trump and you must be a Republican then for criticizing us. It's, you know, every issue is seems to have become this polarized in the modern world where there is no yeah. more nuance to any situation. You cannot, you know, you, you can't support an idea without automatically uh, being labeled as uh, antagonistic to whatever the outlier might be in that situation. Um, I think it's uh, Eric covered a lot of it actually quite well, but you know, there's a reason that war is a racket was uh, so successful. <laughs> it was such a popular speech when Butler dropped it in what the 1930s. Like there, there's a lot of money to be made in this type of conflict and the old Twitter adage about America being essentially like three military industrial corporations in a trench coat yeah. comes to comes to mind you know the the amount of money that we're making selling weapons in this war is absurd it makes sense why the west wants to continue it because at the end of the day everybody's just looking out for themselves and the people that are in a position to make the most amount of money in this situation don't give a damn about the safety of the rest of us Right. Can I add something there real quickly, just to touch on yeah. a point you made at the beginning about you made a you made a Republican joke, which I think is really important, actually, because um, I want to be very clear and commend uh, Wisconsin representatives, Gwen Moore and Mark Buchan for signing this letter, because the backlash was uh, precisely that since the only anti-war voices had been from the right. Um, it did not allow a lot of debate in this country within, you know, non right wing extremist voices to push back against this conflict against Ukraine. There is now a healthy pro democracy, pro um, pro worker, pro human life, pro planet approach to nuclear war and escalation is not a good strategy for the people of Ukraine or for the people of the United States. And we need to make a tactical shift. Well, and there's there's something to be said, too, about, um, you know, something that I've seen covered quite a bit is the analogy that Putin is, you know, backed into a corner. He's a he's a rabid animal that with nowhere else to turn might res might resort to the final option, which in this case could be nuclear weapons. There's a lot of, I think, middle class and upper middle class Americans in particular who just have this weird ingrained sense that everything will work itself out no matter what, because everything always has worked itself out because in their lives it has, right? I mean, uh, the 2008 housing crisis that uh, bankrupted millions and millions of Americans didn't touch them. The COVID crisis didn't touch them. They have not had any issue surviving these cataclysmic uh, economic recessions that the vast majority of Americans have faced. So they, I don't know if it's that their wealth, I think it is that their wealth insulates them or if they're just ignorant to what's going on in the world around them. You know, if it doesn't affect me, then it can't be real. The news is just fear mongering, whatever, whatever, whatever. And I think they genuinely believe that no matter what were to happen, even hypothetically, if nuclear weapons were to come into the equation, that humanity is advanced far enough that it won't be a problem. It's not going to touch my life. Like, sure, it might 
it might mess up a lot of people's lives elsewhere, but whatever, I'll be okay. And the complete lack of empathy really underscores why we have found ourselves in such dire situations across the board. So, so many people just don't care if it's not going to directly impact them. I mean, I, I think that's just the, the general issue with politics is like that we have lost the idea that politics should be something that is addressing the needs of the people who are being governed and just kind of turned it into some some like power play money game where right now we're spending all this money and, and sending relief over and over and over again to Ukraine. While here, the minimum wage is still $7.25 an hour. We yep. still don't have any access to health care. We still yep. can't take any bold action on climate change. We can't yep. protect the right to union. Climate would be in the, in the same uh, mindset as that. Uh, there have been wealthier suburbanites that I've spoken to while doing some recent canvassing that have kind of dismissed climate change as, well, that's just the next step of of uh, scientific advancement is whoever is going to figure out how to how to mitigate it is just going to make a lot of money off of that. And I'm sitting here thinking, and it's like, like, why? Why does it have what? to be that way? Why <laughs> like, does you know we, oh, just man. because that's how it's gone in the past? First of all, that should be an obvious sign that hey, maybe this doesn't work to create an equitable and just society. But also, you know, I I think it's just so silly that we're like capitalism is so ingrained in like American society and our education that it's easier for people to imagine a future where, you know, like the next version of Elon Musk comes in and, you know, creates some weird technology to solve climate change. That is easier to imagine than just restructuring our society in a way where it isn't centered around money and fossil fuels, but it's centered around communities and people's needs. I think that, well, that says a lot about our society that it's easier to imagine one of those than the other. They also can't imagine a motive for improving anybody's lives outside of profit. Like, well, you want to make the world a better place? Well, why? If you're not going to make any money, what's the point? <laughs> like, yeah. I, like, I, uh, I want my children to have a happy, healthy, thriving life. Like, no, that will. So what? Money will help them do that, too. Like, it's it's broken. We're fundamentally broken psychologically. Well, and I know, like, I've, I've had this conversation with Andre a lot, but that brings up this question, like, how do we, how do we change the conversation? And obviously, if with this answer, if this question had an easy answer, none of us would have jobs. But how do we reframe, like, this political question to being, you know, spending all this money on foreign aid to Israel and to Ukraine and to all these different countries? And you know, asking, how are you going to pay for that? Like, if we're going to be asked, how are you going to pay for universal health care, which essentially pays for itself? How the hell are we going to pay to continue to pay for these military operations and this aid? It's just not sustainable. And well, that, to, this to Eric's point, to Eric's point that, uh, you know, the the worst person in the world made, made a great point onion image right there is <laughs> some of the extreme considered the more you know extreme individuals on the right have been talking about that and you know donald trump talked about that significantly in his 2016 campaign how much foreign aid we were throwing out make america great keep the money here obviously he didn't do that in in practice but he didn't mean it <laughs> he said it he said it and a lot of americans heard that and we're like oh hell yeah brother that sounds great and like <laughs> 
so the, the message is there. It's just, you know, you need to be acting upon it rather than just saying it for votes. And No, absolutely. No. Okay. Well, are there any, any other thoughts on uh, Ukraine before we move on to Dan? No final thoughts? I think for the sake of time, we could talk about this conflict forever. I yeah. Think. Let's leave it there good, for today. We, we, we reached a good place to stop for today. All right. Well, everybody, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we will be with Dan Schaefer, um, who writes on stub- Substack for the Recombobulation Area. So stay tuned. We'll be back with Dan Schaefer in just a minute. Right now is the moment we've been waiting for. Right now, never been a better time. Right now, we ain't waiting for it anymore. Right now, we ain't wasting no more time. Right now, right now. Right now, right now. Right now. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Our Wisconsin Revolution podcast. As I said, today we are joined by Dan Schaefer, um, who is a political reporter, an award-winning journalist in Milwaukee, um, and covers a lot of electoral politics in Wisconsin. Dan, how are you doing this morning? Hey there. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing good. I'm maintaining. Uh, <laughs> we're, two we- we're two weeks from Election Day. so Two weeks uh, from sweet, sweet relief. That's right. Uh, so, you know, we're right in the thick of it now. It's uh, it's crazy season. Yes, I know. Like even even as as a leftist, I try not to get too into horse race politics. But I, as a sports fan, I can't help but get into horse race politics. It's just so much fun. But um, so, Dan, do you want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, what what journalism you focus on? talk about your sub stack um, and a lot of the work you've been doing running up to the election in two weeks. Yeah. So I write and publish a weekly opinion column and online publication called the recombobulation area, which is of course named after the world famous uh, post security area at the Milwaukee airport. Uh, there is, it is the only one of its kind. So it, it is a uniquely Milwaukee uh, and so I, I've always loved that uh, spot in the airport, and I love the word recompopulation because it's not a real word. Um, and so I thought it was a good fit for a political column in Milwaukee because you kind of digest the news, you get discombobulated, and then you sit down and you piece everything together and you put your shoes back on and you recombobulate. Uh, and so that's, that's what I try to bring uh, with the weekly column. Uh, and, and so I started that in 2019 and have been doing that uh, on a mostly part-time basis uh, as I'm a stay-at-home dad with my two daughters. Uh, so and, and now this year I've, I've been, been ramping it up a little bit uh, to try to, uh, you know, th- there's, been, there's been a lot to cover uh, <laughs> this year, uh, not only with the, the two top of the ticket races that we're writing crunch time for with, with governor and Senator, but I did a lot of coverage of the Milwaukee mayoral race earlier this, this year, which was a big deal. Uh, first new mayor of the city seen in almost two decades. Uh, and I've done a lot of coverage of infrastructure and, uh, transit and transportation, 
Uh, I wrote a series called Expanding the Divide, uh, which was on the proposed uh, expansion and widening of I-94, uh, which you, you mentioned there was a couple of awards in my history and, the, and a few of them were for that. Um, so, and so right now I'm, I'm been covering the, the race for Senate and the race for governor. Uh, I recently had a piece in the New York Times opinion section about the, uh, the race for Senate and about Mandela Barnes. Um, so yeah, lots, lots going on in, uh, lots in going on. right now. Yeah. So I know we have a lot to talk about when it comes to Governor Evers and Mandela Barnes. So I'm going to say, let's push that conversation to the second half. Cause I want to make sure we have time to talk about some assembly and state Senate races. And Dan, um, for those of, for those of the listeners who aren't subscribed to Dan's Substack, the recombobulation area, um, Dan did a holistic review of every state Senate and state assembly race in Wisconsin, which is freaking fantastic. And it's incredible. It's incredibly it's well done. If you're into local depth, politics, you have to be following that. Than any analysis of these races in the, in the state. Um, and I, and I just wanted to ask a few questions and I think Will and Eric have a few questions about a few of these races and, and we can discuss a few of these. I, the first one that I want to discuss um, is a race that OWR is very heavily invested in. Um, and that is the fifth state Senate district um, out in like the Western Milwaukee area where Jessica Katzenmeyer is running in, you know, a slightly, it, it, it's kind of, I mean, it seems to me that it's at least as Wisconsin goes up in the air. Um, but it is a district that kind of favors um, Republicans in, in like the five to seven point range um you know what what have you been been seeing with this race because i know that i mean jessica's been running in that district because she was running for congress before so she was running in that area she's been running there forever and and i think that you know helps her in the sense that she's met a lot of her constituents already um but obviously you know it's Wisconsin, so gerrymandering. Um, so, wh- how how is that race looking? Because I know that's something that a lot of a lot of progressives are pretty heavily invested in. Because that's as close as a toss up Senate seat in Wisconsin gets. Yeah, I think there's there's a, you know, like you said, I, I previewed all 116 races that are on the ballot in the Wisconsin State Legislature. The Recombination Area is the only publication crazy enough to do that. Um, But yeah, I think, you know, in the breakdown of the state Senate, I think the big picture there is that Republicans are one seat away from that supermajority threshold in the state Senate. And because of uh, a couple of retirements that are happening there uh, in in some swing districts, they're they're pretty likely to get to that two-thirds majority threshold. Um, and I think one of the key races, one of the most competitive races in the state Senate is that fifth district uh, that you mentioned in Milwaukee's western suburbs. Um, and I think this was, you know, a district that was shaping up to be a top target for Democrats going into this election cycle. Uh, Republican Dale Coenga was, you know, uh, a, a, like a, a longtime uh, representative of that district, both in the Assembly and in the Senate. Um, and he chose not to seek re-election this year, uh, but that was after the 
legislature or after the the baffling and ridiculous process that brought us the Republican introduced brought us to adopt the Republican introduced maps. Uh, so in, in to a large degree, the the maps that were introduced really saw where shifts were happening in Wisconsin and Milwaukee suburb, particularly the suburbs uh, in Milwaukee County have been shifting to the left pretty significantly over the past few years. In 2020, the single municipality that shifted most to the left, most for, you know, for Joe Biden, for the Democrats on the ticket in 2020 was Wauwatosa. Uh, now, Wauwatosa is a city that voted for George W. Bush in by double-digit margins in 2000, uh, and but was one that voted for Joe Biden uh, by uh, like a you know basically two thirds of voters voted for uh, in Wauwatosa went went for Biden, um, and so Republicans clearly saw that coming and really carved up. Uh, Wauwatosa as much as they could uh, to uh, to try really try and shore up their advantages, and so they uh, took this state senate district that had a district lean that was basically a 50-50 seat, uh, and made it a basically a seven to eight point Republican advantage, uh, and so they they clearly moved the goalposts here in in this district as much as any. They carved Wauwatosa up into three state Senate districts and four assembly districts to really limit the political power of, of you know, an emerging uh, a suburb that's growing in the Milwaukee area. Um, and so, yeah, this this seat in the fifth district is really an important one. Jessica Katzenmeyer, like you said, she won a competitive primary. Um, you know, I, I think some people had underestimated her going into that primary and, and she, you know, she won pretty convincingly, which was really interesting to see. Um, you know, she has a lot of history in union organizing. So I think that is an important factor that that is, you know, contributed to to her victory there. Um, in the primary, but I think she's also, you know, she's running into a lot of these headwinds that that we're seeing in the Milwaukee suburbs. Uh, you know, she's running against uh, Rob Hutton, who was the uh, Republican assembly representative who actually lost in 2020 uh, to now Lieutenant Governor candidate Sarah Rodriguez. Um, and so, you know, he's back to he's back to run for Senate. And, you know, this is probably projected to be a Republican win. But at the same time, I think this is the part of the state that you're seeing some of the most shift happen. And I think with the, you know, the with the abortion ruling from the, from the Supreme Court, um, and with, you know, just the larger changing dynamics in the suburbs, I think this is still headed to be a very competitive race. Um, and, uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, this is definitely going to be one that that I'll be watching on election night when those results begin to roll in. Eric, Will, you got you got thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, Dan, I, I know you wrote an article for Milwaukee Record in May, I believe it was even talking about uh, the TOSA shift and how this was going to be something that the maps uh, obviously touched on, because if, if you're seeing it, you know, the Republican legislator has uh, has seen it, too. Um, Jessica, I think, is very unique in that she, like you said, she has been running in this district for quite some time now. She has hit so many doors. 
it might be doubled. It might be north of 10,000 doors that she's hit at this point, uh, based on a conversation with I had, that I had with her a few months ago. And these, I think it's so important because everybody follows the governor's, the gubernatorial and the Senate races, right? That's covered by every news outlet across the state. But uh, what you did with the recombobulation area in hitting each of these individual races, everybody wants to know what's going on locally and everybody is not really able to get the kind of clear and concise data that shows what these map splits are going to do. So I think you did a fabulous, fabulous job with that. Um, and one, I guess one point that I want to make specifically because it's more impactful to me is uh, it's on the north side of the Wauwatosa split is what they did with the 24th and 20th district. Um, Dan Canodal, who is 18 and 2020 against Emily Segrist winning by less than two percentage points. Uh, and those districts have now flipped from plus three or four Trump to plus 25 Trump, uh, which makes it the largest shift in the entire state. The good old boys want to protect each other and protect Dan. If you had to pick a single race that you think was, I don't want to say the scariest for them, but you know, they're going out of their way to really secure some of these more suburban uh, districts going forward. How long do you think it takes before these start to shift again? You've seen the data, you've poured over it. You know that these communities are changing quite rapidly. You pointed it out with the uh, with Tosa's shift from George Bush to Joe Biden. Give me a five, 10 year projection. What do you think the, the maps might look like in the uh, in the next map cycle? Yeah, I think I, I think what's interesting about um, about this is I I think uh, you know I think we saw a lot of suburban shifts happen kind of right away in the, in the Trump years uh, when he was president. Going into that 2018 election was kind of the story of you know a lot of women in running in suburban districts and finding success running against the Trump message in in 20, 2018 in particular. But I think that happened in a more pronounced way in some other major metros, uh, you know, East in the East coast, I think we saw it like Atlanta, Philadelphia, some of these, you know, States that have been really shifting with the suburbs, uh, happened kind of before Milwaukee because Milwaukee's metro area is so segregated and so polarized and, you know, the wow counties were really the GOP stronghold for, for decades. Um, and, you know, under Scott Walker, that was, you know, that was kind of like his stronghold was Waukesha County. Um, but I think the, the more you see this shift happening, you know, we really saw it in 2020 when a couple legislative seats flipped. You had the shifts when cities like Wauwatosa. So I think, you know, eastern Waukesha County, southern Ozaukee County, those parts that are close to Milwaukee that are, are shifting I think in a really significant way. So I think that's where we're going to see Democrats and progressives start to pick up more ground uh, over over the next decade here. I think that's still unfolding here because things were so entrenched. You know, I think we're seeing some places on the East Coast or West Coast where things are kind of shifting back a little bit. There's a little bit of, you know, suburban backlash to certain things. But I don't think that's happening yet in, in the Milwaukee area. I think that shift is still unfolding and i think you know one state assembly race to watch as a as a real bellwether for this is the the new 84th assembly district uh where 
Luann Bird, Democrat, is running against a uh, twice-failed mayoral candidate from Milwaukee, uh, now Greenfield, Bob Donovan. And so I think that that race, you know, I think the key city in the last election cycle was Wauwatosa. I think a key city in this election cycle is going to be Greenfield. Uh, and so I think, you know, Greenfield is a city that voted for tr majority for Trump in 2016, but voted a majority for Biden in 2020 by, you know, two, three percent or whatever. So I think this is going to be a real test case in that district. You know, it's basically the only truly competitive district in the Milwaukee suburbs with the way the, the Republicans have drawn the maps, crunching every blue voter into the small little block in Milwaukee County and trying to shore up, uh, you know, as much as they could where uh, in, in Waukesha, Eastern Waukesha County, Southern Milwaukee County, Southern Ozaukee County, uh, where, where a lot of those shifts are taking place. So I think, and then I think when you look out, like you mentioned the five, 10 years, I think, you know, uh, I think cities like, like I mentioned, uh, like Brookfield or Cedarburg or, you know, a lot of places like that, that have, that have shifted in recent years. And I also, you know, you mentioned you're from the Fox Valley. Uh, I'm a UW Oshkosh grad. So I have a, I have a lot of connections uh, in the Fox Valley. I, I think that's an area that goes overlooked sometimes when you're Absolutely. thinking shifts. And when you're talking about, you know, places like basically that stretch from along like the Western edge of Lake Winnebago, where it's like uh, Oshkosh, Nina, Appleton. I, well, I really think, I think that 19th Senate district is going to be really interesting this year. Roger Roth's yeah. old seat. Yeah. That's another one that's, that's really competitive. And uh, you know, I think um, you know, that's another one that, that Republicans gave themselves a, a little bit more of an advantage. Saw, saw that shift coming. Uh, so I, I think the Fox Valley is a really important part of the state long term uh, for Democrats, for progressive, for building that like long term uh, infrastructure for change on the left. Um, and then I think, you know, the one that the part of the state that's going to be super competitive this year is Western Wisconsin. Uh, I think a state Senate district around Eau Claire uh, is one of the most competitive state Senate districts. And then within that, uh, one of the most, probably the most competitive state assembly district, the 94th, which I think on Alaska is the biggest city in, in that district. I think just generally La Crosse area, Eau Claire area, you know, that, that's, that's a really important part of the state because that is a part of the state that has definitely been shifting to the right uh, over the past few years. And if Democrats can limit the damage there, um, you know, that's that's going to be an important part of the uh, of, you know, how things shape up statewide as well. So. So I'd really love to go from there and zoom out a little bit, if that's OK with all of y'all. I see some nodding. OK, um, because, Dan, you said something in the last few minutes a couple of times, which I knew what you meant, but you used the expression um, shifting to the left. Um, and just recently, you also used the term um, progressive and Democrat interchangeably, um, which I understand why you did that. Um, something, though, that I have been um, increasingly struck by is that those things might not necessarily mean the same thing in that um, places that Democrats have made inroads like suburbs in part is not because they are progressive, but because they have moved actually to the right on issues. Um, so to take a big step back from that, um, 
you had a tweet a couple of years ago, actually like a year and a half ago, um, the day that Mandela Barnes announced that he was no, running. No, 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 I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna shake you. Right? <laughs> just, just, just uh, this is a positive day. I thought um, it, it was the day that Mandela Barnes announced that he was running for Senate, and you said something along the lines of, "I'm not gonna put words in your mouth," but it was something along the lines of, "I know who's gonna be fired up about this: young voters and voters of color." And I remember seeing that tweet and literally laughing out loud. And that is not an insult to you, obviously. It makes sense on paper, but I something in my soul made me realize that I did not think that that was true, which was part of the impetus for my county board run, actually, was I felt that young people were not being heard by the party at all. And I wanted to put out an agenda that was aggressively shaped around the values of students and young people. Um, to that extent, a Twitter thread of yours the other day really caught my attention, where it looks like, after all of that, it does appear that Mandela Barnes is, um, oops, excuse me. Can you still hear me? Sorry, my earbuds fell out. It does appear that Mandela Barnes is struggling with young voters, particularly voters under 30. Um, and so the question that I want to explore here is whether these suburbs, quote unquote, shifting to the left or becoming more democratic is actually in conflict with other parts of the democratic coalition and could cause an issue. We were talking about 10 years in the future, the term coalition of the ascendant came to mind. Um, but obviously that idea from Democrats that demographics are destiny and that an increasingly diverse nation would inherently benefit the Democrats is really not borne out by evidence. In fact, in 2020, you saw significant levels of attrition to the Republicans in the South side of Milwaukee with Latinos, a very young demographic overall. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it looks like in the polls and the crosstabs that I've seen where Johnson is slightly outperforming Evers, that the areas that Johnson is doing better or that there are more undecided refusals, et cetera, are young voters, men, and young Black voters in particular. Um, and another data point I just want to add real quickly is that young voters repeatedly say that their biggest priorities are cost of living, inflation, minimum wage, Medicare for all a little bit Ukraine and uh, COVID-19 also, and, and shutdowns. Those things don't map neatly along the two-party system. They also, you'll notice, are not what the ads are talking about right now. Um, so I know that was a lot, but I want to ask um, if you think that it's true that young voters are not, um, are more enthused about Ron Johnson than Mandela Barnes, if that's just a quirk of the polls, if that's bad sampling, or if you think there's something actually to that, and I'd really love to know why you think that. Yeah, I think part of it is, so there's a couple of things. I'll, I'll start with Johnson and that that kind of cross tabs and, and, and that I was looking into. So this is something that I've been tracking for months now. I write, I write a recap of every new Marquette poll. Uh, and even before the primary, when they were polling, you know, when they first started polling head to head with each of the Democratic candidates uh, running for Senate, Johnson was winning with young voters then too, uh, no matter the candidate. Uh, I think you know, I think Barnes was doing the best of the group, but I, I don't think, uh, you know, he was running ahead. So I think, you know, I think uh, Johnson has, if if you're somebody who watches a lot of YouTube or Hulu or whatever, Johnson has been really aggressive in advertising all year uh, in, in those types of platforms. And I, I, I think he has really quietly been targeting young men. To, to support his campaign. Because if you look in the crosstabs for uh, kind of where that 18 to 29 support is, like it, it's not coming from women, it's coming from young men. So young men in Wisconsin, uh, I, sure. I, I have to pull the numbers to get exact in front of me, but I think it's like 60, 40 that Johnson is winning with young men. Uh, so Dan, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Was that, 
I just wanted to ask why you think that is. You know, if you remember the 2016 election, the stereotype was that the Bernie supporters were Bernie bros, that, you know, young dudes are, are the left, are socialists, are out of step. Uh, um, so there's there's kind of an interesting collision of stereotypes happening here. Why, um, that, that I haven't seen play out in election cycles before 2022. So what is it about young men this cycle that you think is appealing about Johnson, but not Barnes per se? Well, I think I think for one, you just have to look at like if if advertising didn't have an impact, they wouldn't be doing it, right? So obviously, sure. like whatever message he's bringing about about inflation, you know, about uh, you know a disillusionment with with the political process in general, uh, and it just being kind of against Biden, you know, I I think uh, there's a lot of anti-Biden sure. sentiment among younger voters as well, and I think that's where he's really dropped off uh, since 2020. You look at the the places where you know his like obviously his approval rating is down over the past couple of years it's up a little bit over the last couple of months but overall down and i think with young voters is is where he has lost a lot of ground particularly young voters and and black voters honestly is where he's lost a lot of support mm-hmm. over the last couple of years uh and so you know, you look at the fundamentals of a race like like this in the midterms. You have an unpopular president. You have, uh, you know, you you typically see the opposition party pick up seats in a midterm, and you have a 50-50 state like Wisconsin. So I think, you know, you already probably had a lot of young men who were voting Republican in Wisconsin because of the because of the way the gender gap works across the state. Uh, it's just huge splits no matter the race. I think this is more pronounced than any other that I've seen. Uh, you know, possibly because of the Roe v. Wade ruling this year, really amping things up. But but I think that's probably the case beforehand. But I also think, um, you know, some of the Democratic messaging from the Barnes campaign in particular this year has has had some, they've left some points on the board when it comes to engaging with younger voters. And I think I'll use one example of that, which is student debt relief. Oh, yeah. And absolutely. And I think I think it has been a mistake by the Barnes campaign to not be talking about student debt relief. Um, because I think, look, this is a good thing that Joe Biden did to cancel, you know, this kind of targeted cancellation of student debt. Uh and you know, I, th- I think that was kind of one of the more progressive wins uh during, you know, of Biden's presidency. So far, I think that was, you know, a a move that was really celebrated by a lot of Sanders supporters uh, when it when it happened. Maybe not to the degree that some people were hoping for, but the fact that it happened, uh, I think, was a big deal. And this is something that has huge support on both sides of the political spectrum uh, among young people. I think young people who have grown up uh, during a time when college is not affordable, uh, when, you know, we have just a cascade of crisis happening that that is making you know paths to higher education paths to the middle class uh more difficult um you know i think the fact that the barnes campaign hasn't talked about student debt relief at all is is a missed opportunity um and i think you know a lot of competitive senate seats they were kind of waiting for the polling to come back on that issue and it's just like just just it's such a democratic party thing to do something that's going to help people and then not want to talk about it like it's, it's yeah. just so frustrating very on brand uh, for them yeah 
Yeah, I think we saw the same thing like with Obamacare, you know, a decade yeah. ago. Like, it was a, a real win, and then they all of a sudden they didn't want to talk about it. Just, come on. Wow. Don't get us talking about healthcare now, Dan. Yeah. That's <laughs> um, but but I, you know, I, I think that was a missed opportunity, and I think you know there. What when I wrote about the Barnes campaign in the New York Times. I wrote about that if he's going to win, he's going to have to tap into a new pool of voters. He's not going to have to, running as a traditional Democrat is not his path. He's also on the same ticket as Tony Evers. So if there are people who are just like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm more supportive of, of Evers than perhaps the more, more progressive wing of the party, like, are, are we really going to get that many split ticket voters when like people voted for Evers and Barnes together in 2018? Like, I, I don't really see that. Um, so I, I thought, you know, Barnes had needed to tap into a new pool of voters. And I thought an issue like student debt relief that has such great support, uh, with, with younger voters would have been a path to do that. Uh, and so I think, you know, folks like Mandela Barnes and Tim Ryan in Ohio and a, and a couple of the other close competitive, uh, Senate races have, have really shied away from that issue, which, well which I think is not great. And I think, and I think another example of this, um, not to bog on to this too long, because I, I have a question this is, that this is going to lead to, but I know Eric and I have talked a lot about how another one of those, I think the points kind of left on the board is a really good way to put that, where there were some missed opportunities. Um, and I think an another one of those mistakes was that massive ad blitz that they spent a ton of money on on the ad about supporting police and ICE um, seemed seemed to me at least in the polling to directly come around the time that he had that steep drop off with young people um, when that last poll was released. And obviously it's been a downward trend, but there was a pretty, I mean, significant, the, the most recent Marquette poll showed that kind of that drop in young support, you know, the strongest. And I think then, and, and this was a question we talked about in the primary, and I don't, I don't mean to rehash like primary stuff, but I think the argument <laughs> was that like, okay, when we're thinking about, you know, Democrats to win Wisconsin need to tap into new voters. And I like that you put it that way, like a new type of Democratic voter. And like the personal, like personally, the reason that I supported Tom Nelson is, is the, because I thought that Tom Nelson could get a lot of progressive turnout. As you said, I think the Fox Valley is a very undervalued area in Wisconsin. And I think he really could have driven that like blue union voter out to the polls in the Fox Valley. So Dan, in your opinion, when it comes to Mandela Barnes, um, what is his potential? Like, do you still think like the young voter is the area that like like that is what he can tap into to win the election. Like if Mandela wins in two weeks, like what do you think the big group of voters that we'll be talking about is that comes in to help him? Like, is it That's young people question. in Milwaukee? Is it people in the Fox Valley? Is it a mix? Like, what is it? What do you think that looks like? Yeah. Okay. So I'll, I, I do disagree with a couple of the things you said there, but I'll answer the question first, which is I, I, it'll be Milwaukee. His his path his path to winning is through turnout in Milwaukee, and I, I think that is more the the new voters to tap into uh, that pe people that 
don't always vote because Milwaukee yeah. turnout has, has been all over the place uh, in recent years. And, uh, you know, part of that is a lot of voter suppression that we see in Milwaukee. Uh, you know, Republicans have made it a point to say over and over again that they think Milwaukee's votes don't count uh, and have all, all these ridiculous things and are trying to, you know, get rid of drop boxes and, and make it harder to vote and get rid of early voting and, and all this, you know, so, that, but I think if, if yeah. Barnes is able to break through uh, with black voters in Milwaukee, who I don't think would have voted for Tom Nelson in numbers at all. And that's uh, fair enough. Sure. I think with, uh, I, and I think there's a real opportunity right in front of us because Barack Obama is coming to Milwaukee on Saturday for a rally with Mandela Barnes and with Tony Evers. And the stat about Barack Obama and turnout in Milwaukee that I think that I always come back to really shows that he is able to drive turnout in Milwaukee like no one else. Uh, is the fact that his high turnout mark in Milwaukee was not 2008. 2008 was his high turnout mark everywhere. He actually had higher turnout in the city of Milwaukee in 2012, which I think is really interesting because That's it just really shows, fascinating. shows his ability to, to drive turnout. Um, you know, he had remarkable success in the Midwest, uh, in a lot of Midwestern cities like Milwaukee. And mm -hmm. so I think, you know, th this is a city that's, that's, uh, has a lot of black voters. And I think Barack Obama is able to drive turnout in parts of Milwaukee that have had turnout down since he was on the, on the ticket. You know, Milwaukee had a very precipitous drop in turnout from 2012 to 2016. There were not as many people excited about Hillary Clinton in the city of Milwaukee. Uh, you know, we saw that tick back up in turnout a little bit in 2020, but you also, like you mentioned, Hispanic voters uh, gravitating uh, towards Republicans. Uh, also a lot of, lost a little bit of ground with, with black voters too. Um, and so I think Obama coming to town is, is important because I think when he shows up and, and that can really drive turnout uh, in the city of Milwaukee in a way uh, that, that no one else has really been able to do. Obviously he's not on the ticket, but I think for a lot of people that like seeing Barack Obama and Mandela Barnes on stage together is going to give you that image that like, this is kind of part of the same Tra trajectory and i think there hasn't been uh there's been only been one other black senator representing the midwest since obama and mandela barnes is running to make history there and is you know part of the uh, you know history making potential you know arc of of the obama years and i think you know barnes has talked about seeing the 04 uh convention speech from from Obama was was a big reason that he got into politics to begin with, and I think we'll hear, you know, some of those stories in in the closing weeks here in Milwaukee. And you know, Milwaukee hasn't had a candidate on the top of the ticket, you know, from from the city in a long time. Like yep. Tony Evers from Milwaukee, Tammy Baldwin's not from. The last time we had yep. a Milwaukee run statewide was Tom Barrett ten years ago. So I, I and you know, <laughs> right. We, we don't need <laughs> Today, but yeah, um, our friend uh, in Luxembourg. That's right. That's right. The ambassador. Yeah. Uh, so I think I think Milwaukee has a really interesting role to play uh, in this election. I think that's a fascinating point as well to kind of consider the um, 
we all are in agreement that Milwaukee will be the kind of metric I think that determines this election. But to, to go back to something Anders said then, uh, with the a lot of the pro-police ads that the Barnes campaign put out and how he struggled with young people, do you think that might have been he was clearly trying to stick an olive branch out to the rest of the state, right? Because that type of rhetoric, I don't think will do very well uh, in Milwaukee or amongst young people. Is that the kind of risk that you think is worth taking in a race that will be defined by high turnout in, in safer areas like Madison and Milwaukee? No, I think he needed to, I think he needed to, you know, he's, he's trying to build a, a broad coalition. Like it, it, you have to build a coalition uh with with people who you know might not exactly be in your lane in in the democratic party or on the left um and i think you know that's something that that tom nelson was not able to do uh in his campaign it, it was not a coalition building campaign and i think that is that is what has separated the barnes campaign uh, from the others during the primary is that he was able to build a broader coalition that, that could in, include a, a multiracial democracy that, that includes everything from cities to farms. Um, so I think that is, you know, that that's the part of what Barnes has done. The, the, the ads, I think, you know, we, we can get caught up in being nitpicky about those certain ads. Um, but, but, uh, but I also think, uh, you know, he's running against Ron Johnson. Like he's, he's running against someone who is, who is leveling some of the most ridiculous and racist attacks uh, of any campaign in the state. So I think, you know, could, could you nitpick whether it's the right approach to kind of have the argument through the ads? Sure. But, I, but I think it, the aim of it was, was to build a coalition. And, and I think that, um, you know, I, and I think that is an important part of, of what the Barnes campaign has been. And it's trying to build that that broader coalition. Um, but but like I said, it's, there, there's some areas where it could, could have been a little bit, you know, the points on the board. There's, there's some points on the board. And I, I, you know, but at the same time, I think, you know, are you going to see a more, um, you know, a, a candidate like Barnes run for run for state? I think it's a unique thing that we have a candidate like Barnes running for statewide office, um, you know, with the background that he has um, in, in Milwaukee and, and with a lot of the values that, that he shares as well. So. And just his youth, right? The, how many senators are in that demographic? He'd be what this, it has to be the second or third youngest Senator in the nation. He'd be the second youngest. Um, and, you know, that was what I really talked about a lot. In my New York times piece was that, the Senate and the Democratic leadership really in general is, is very old uh, and, and not always. I think one of the fault lines in politics in America right now is a generational one uh, as much as it is, is an ideological kind of progressive, moderate, whatever. I think, you know, one of the things that, that stands out with Barnes is just the, there's more of a sense of urgency to get things done. Um you know, he, he talks about wanting to be, he's talked about wanting to be bold and wanting to, to get things to getting rid of the filibuster and, you know, taking on, you know, corporate interests at the, at the Senate level and things like that. And so, um, uh, and, and I think, yeah, that the generational aspect of it is huge. And I think, you know, young people have lived through recession and wars and, uh, a pandemic and all of these different things. And I think that brings a different approach to millennials and, and Gen Z and, and whatever. And I think, 
Barnes being 35, uh, and he would be the second youngest uh, member of the Senate. And the Senate is currently the oldest it has ever been. Uh, there, are, there are more people over the age of 70 than there are under the age of 50 uh, in the Senate. So it's just, you, we need more young people, uh, more, more young people representing millennials and, and Gen Z. I think there's going to be the first Gen Z congressman, you know, breaking through in, in this cycle yeah, coming Max, up as well. Max Frost. Yeah. So I think that, you know, that's an interesting component of, of what we're looking at with the Barnes race too. It's just that generational aspect and, and um, you know, con connecting with people in a way that Joe Biden or Tony Evers or Nancy Pelosi might not be able to. So right. on and deeper I think than gener. Oh, sorry, Anders. I was just going to add deeper than generational as well as with Mandela's background. He does class. not come from money. It's class. Yeah. Because every lens that I will look at every issue from will always start and usually end with uh, class and the relationship to uh, with wealth in, in this equation. I think Mandela is very unique in that situation that it's not just, you know, the son of some former senator or Wall Street executive or something. Uh, we're not going to throw any shade at any other potential Democratic primary candidates here, but it's not somebody who is uh, <laughs> stepping in with tons and tons of influence because of the wealth that their family has accrued. It's somebody who has put the work in to, to kind of get to the position that they're in today. And, and I think that connection with, uh, with people, both from a youth perspective and from a class perspective is invaluable. Well, and I think, and, and, and this is something and, and uh, like something that has just bugged me since Mandela announced, because I mean, Mandela was arguably when he entered the assembly was arguably the most pr progressive politician in the state. Um, I, you know, I, you know, there are a few people that you could compare with, but I, I use easily in that, in that top tier. And I think something that just seems to frustrate me is kind of I, I i feel like it's kind of this beto effect where he ran as an outright progressive and had a lot of success and then got a lot of you know there was a lot of interest from party money um the d triple c and all these people in promoting him as part of their goals instead of maybe necessarily his own and i guess that has just led me to questions like and I understand because P like when I talk about this, people always send me the links of old interviews where he's talked about Medicare for all and he's talked about the Green New Deal. But the fact that he said it once doesn't mean he's running on it. And I think that's that's a big distinction for me is like when we talk about these class things, I mean, he's he's from a working class family. He's from Milwaukee. He understands these issues. And, and, and like we all know he does. And I think we all know that like Mandela wants like a universal healthcare system. Like, I, I think we all understand that. I think it's again, kind of like these points on the board and like generally not even an issue with Mandela or Tony Evers, but like this problem with like this influx of corporate money being what decides what elections are about. And I think like on the Republican side that will make every abortion or every race, sorry, every race about abortion and race. And I think on the Democratic side, then we need to find a way. And again, this isn't the fault of one candidate, but I think the, the system is like, how do we find a way to be running these campaigns on 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 issues that are that are generally focused around welfare? And I think that like Mandela is kind of the sign of this transition between the two of these things. 
between a more like party focused and people focused politics where like I see both in him and I and I see the potential for him to be somebody who is like you know runs like on a truly people focused campaign but I like just that's something that I personally have like been really fascinated by and I think like another example of this is John Fetterman in the way that he is very much like him and Mandela together are both running as best as they can within the party, like populist focused campaigns. And I think it's going to be really fascinating to see how they fare compared to like more corporate candidates like Val Demings, um, you know, this November more broadly, because I think that there are a lot of different kinds of democratic candidates, like even in within Wisconsin, not to mention nationwide, that'll determine how this party works. Party, right? You gotta, you gotta, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, that wasn't necessarily a question, but it's just something that, I don't know, I think both Evers and Mandela make me think about a lot because I am confused why Tony Evers outperforms Mandela with young people by double digits in the most recent polling. That doesn't seem to necessarily make sense, being that Evers is older. He's definitely not more progressive. Like, I, like so I, I, maybe it's the incumbency advantage. Maybe it's like you were talking about Ron Johnson is doing a really good job of of targeting young Wisconsin men. Um, like I, it may be like some sort of like nasty concoction of, of a few of all of these things. That's what but I think it is. It's Don't such under- a, an interesting election yeah. to watch. I mean, don't understate I, like, the value of the race baiting ads that Johnson's been putting out for months and months and months, essentially oh, absolutely. demonizing Mandela, turning him into the boogeyman. We we saw this with with Hillary Clinton in particular. She has been the the right wing boogeyman for 35 years. So no matter what happened in that race, I, I don't think she is a candidate that can win. The right wing messaging is just so concise and so efficient at hitting their talking points over and over again. And in the state of Wisconsin in particular, we like to act, you know, forward is the state motto and everything, but there is still a lot of, a lot of racism hiding in, in our state, unfortunately. Well, Dan, no. and as, and as a final chance for you to, to share some thoughts and I want to be respectful of your time and, and we can wrap it after this, but I um do you have any any big predictions for election night anything that you're particularly going to be watching I don't want to make you make predictions if you don't want to be um clipped yeah, and, and made fun of for years but yeah. um yeah what are you what are you going to be watching on election night Yeah I think you know look I think Mandel Barnes can still win this race I really do uh and I and I Me think too. You know, we're two weeks away uh there's a real opportunity that Wisconsin Democrats have. And it's, but it's also, you know, in many ways, particularly at the state level, we're, we're, we're standing at the edge of the cliff in a, in a lot of ways. And I think we need to take a couple of steps back, steps away from that cliff. And I think this election down ballot, uh, those, a lot of those assembly and Senate races that we were talking about at the beginning in, in my preview, I think those are, that's what's gonna I'm gonna be watching because it's not only that those are the competitive races. I think those show kind of where, you know, going through the exercise of looking at the whole map and looking at all 116 races, it really gives you a look at like where the battlegrounds are. And I think you know Western Wisconsin, Fox Valley, Milwaukee suburbs, uh, you know, places like Beloit, Janesville. Um, so I think those those 
you know, swing areas, I think is what I'm going to be watching. Um, I, I, I'm writing a story right now on the Lou Anberg campaign. Um, and so that one is, is top of my list for, I think, I, I really do think the potential supermajority that the legislature could reach in this election with the new maps that they've given themselves, there's a real path for them to get that supermajority, which would just absolutely destroy politics in Wisconsin. Destroy. It wouldn't matter if Evers is reelected if they got that supermajority. They would take right. this state apart. So I think, you know, they're basically the assembly is going to come down to seven races. And I think if Democrats or if Republicans win four of them, then, then they're going to get the supermajority. And we're looking at the abyss if that happens. Because if, you, if you've seen how Robin Voss operates with a regular majority, there is no telling what this guy is capable of with the supermajority when he doesn't have to listen to, let, like, let's say Tony Evers gets reelected he, and they get the supermajority. They wouldn't have to do anything that Tony Evers said. His whole next two years would be, he wouldn't be able to accomplish a single thing. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, I'll run through some of the assembly races that I think are important. The 94th district, Democrat Steve Doyle uh, is looking to hold that seat. 54th district in Oshkosh, huge one. Uh, Mayor Lori Palmieri, uh, is looking to hold that seat. Gordon Hintz retired. Uh, the 45th district in Beloit area, Mark Spritzer is, is running for state Senate. Uh, and Clinton Anderson uh, is the Democrat running there. He's, he's on the Beloit City Council. Uh, Stevens Point, Katrina Shanklin is the Democrat running to hold that seat there. She has been absolutely key on a lot of uh, water issues around the state, a lot of the PFAS uh, contamination issues. So she is somebody you absolutely need to keep uh, in the state assembly. Tip McGuire uh, in the Racine and Kenosha County area is a Democrat there. He's He's uh, got a lot of labor support. Uh, very important to keep him there. And then we've got races with Republicans favorites. I mentioned the Lou Anberg race in the 84th. Uh, there's two races in the far northwest part of the state uh, that are districts that Democrat Assembly representatives are retiring in districts that Trump won. So those are going to be difficult for Democrats to hold. Two real obvious pickup opportunities for Republicans there. But mm -hmm. Democrats have some really, really good candidates. Laura Gapsby uh, is Gapsky. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce her last name, but she's, she's running a strong campaign there. And then there's one that is a really weird gerrymandered seat where current representative Don Vruink OWR uh, endorsed Don Brewing. Okay, great. I think that's <laughs> an important race. Uh, he is an incumbent, but is running as an underdog in a different district. So they gerrymandered him into a more Republican district. They gave him a ton of new constituents. A ton of new constituents. Very weird. Wow. They basically did this so that they couldn't, they took a seat away from Dane County. Uh, so they're... Wow. This is a really important, uh, yeah, they went through the whole redistricting process. Dane County is the fastest growing part of the state and they didn't give it a new seat, which is incredible. Um, mm -hmm. So Brewink is a really important uh, hold there. He's running against somebody who is uh, kind of bucked the state party in on the Republican side and said that he hates the investigations into the elections and stuff like that. And he actually mm -hmm. beat the state GOP backed guy there. So so that's a pretty interesting race. I don't know if he ended up getting the state party or support as well. Uh, and then the 51st district has been kind of the Democrats white whale uh, in the last few ex 
uh, cycles just west of Madison and kind of southwestern Wisconsin. Um, uh, Leah Spicer is running against Todd Novak. Novak has held that seat by just a couple hundred votes in a number of election cycles in a row. So that's, that's going to be a tough one. And then there's one really obvious pickup opportunity with the Republicans basically gave themselves from what was a 50-50 seat to a 16-point uh, Republican advantage in Wauwatosa in the 13th district there. Uh, so mm -hmm. I think there's a pretty clear path for Republicans to get to 64 seats in the state assembly. And basically, if they win two more of, of the ones that kind of I've been talking about, they can get to that, um, you know, if they pick up two more from the state, the, the races that I've been talking about, they can get to that supermajority threshold. And I just, I, I think that is the nightmare scenario. Uh, as far as, you know, I think we're, a lot of us are in, invested in the top of the ticket races so much, but in far, as far as your day-to-day -day life in Wisconsin, I think the supermajority- Yeah, we gotta keep them from the supermajority. Absolutely ruin the state. So I think th those races, if you're in those swing counties, that's where you can really make a difference and really get involved. And I think, you know, I, I'll be sure to send you my story on the Lou Bird campaign, but that that one is 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 a really, really important race. Yeah, well, and, and an excellent segue for that is you can volunteer with OWR to text for candidates that are on the front line of the supermajority um, on the state Senate side, Kelly Westland up in Ashland and Jessica Katzenmeyer in West Allis in Western Milwaukee. Um, Don Vruink, we're texting for Don as well. And um, Jane Swiggum, who's running for assembly down in Southwest Wisconsin in Gaze Mills. So um, volunteering with OWR to support these candidates is absolutely an option. Um, and, and they need it. As Dan said, um, you know, the assembly and the legislature can easily be overlooked, but at the same time, it is fighting on the front lines from keeping the state of Wisconsin from absolute Republican control. So, yeah. And, and it's building, even if, you know, even if these races are gerrymandered and difficult, and if you're in a district that is not, uh, you know, maybe favored for a competitive or whatever, but it's also about building that long-term infrastructure. Uh, yes. and, and I think, you know, part of why I write this preview is because I think democracy happens from the ground up, not from the top of the ticket down. And with these mm -hmm. races, all politics is local. Politics is local, absolutely. And and races like the Assembly and the Senate is is where you start to build that long term infrastructure on the left in Wisconsin. So, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for taking the time, and also thank you so much for writing those election guides. Like that again, easily the most comprehensive um, Substack. The um, Gosh, your analysis on the freaking races, every assembly and Senate race, I can't, I don't even want to think about how much time that probably took you to put together. Um, oh, but seriously. the recombobulation area on Substack, if you're not subscribed to Dan's Substack, you absolutely should be. Um, a lot of great stuff on the upcoming elections. Uh, seriously, thank you you're again, an invaluable resource. Us. To us, Dan. Give us a Twitter shout out too, Dan. Yeah, Dan's Dan, one of my favorite people... Twitter follows. Where can people find you online, Dan? Uh, well, like you said, you can find me on, on Substack where I publish the recombobulation area. I have options for free subscribers and paid subscribers. If you want to become uh, someone who supports independent political journalism in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, and then, like you said, I, I, you can find me on Twitter at Dan R. Schaefer. 
where I will occasionally tweet about things other than the Milwaukee Bucks. Good to know. Well, Dan, thank you again so much for joining us. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll talk to you all next week. People struggling, people dying. Every day's another headline. Wow. People cheating, people lying, leaving everybody else behind. We can wait for somebody else to come along. We can get on our feet and shout it. Right now is the moment we've been waiting for. Right now.